chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 40. Again, happy Mother's Day, just in case you didn't hear me out there. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 40. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would anoint my lips to preach your word. Consecrate me even though I am broken, Lord. May you speak through me in such a way that your people will be edified and that you will be glorified. In Jesus' name, and the people online and present say amen. As we continue our series through the book of Matthew, now in chapter 23, even a casual reader will notice right away Jesus really doesn't hold any punches in confronting the religious leaders. As he draws his public ministry to a close, a few days before his crucifixion, the king is teaching one parable after another, exposing the scribes and Pharisees in their foolish attempts to incriminate him and eventually have him killed has reached a climax in this chapter. We find Jesus in the midst of a mixed crowd. He singles out the scribes and Pharisees for their rampant hypocrisy, and rightly so, unleashes his indignation on them, uttering seven wolves against these leaders. For they were experts at talking the talk but not walking the walk. They didn't practice what they preach, and they made it hard, if not impossible, for other people to practice what they preach. They performed well in public, but their backstage life was a hot mess. They were great at compartmentalizing God one way on Sunday, but different Monday through Saturday. They wanted man's honor more than they wanted God's honor. They wanted the best seats in the house. They craved the greetings in the marketplace. And with a smug self-righteousness, they jockeyed for positions of being called rabbi, an instructor, and father. They were in love with their reputation. Sadly, they were kingdom blockers, keeping people from entering into God's kingdom. They had a world-class, works-based salvation with man-made rules that trumped even the law of God. They were blind guides who... majored in the minors. They were all right and everybody else was wrong. Because they majored on the externals, they never saw the rottenness in their own hearts. They were great at going through the religious routines in the temple, but totally oblivious to the absence of the manifest presence of God. They were comfortable at preparing the altar, but never seeing any fire on the altar. No glory in the temple. They looked good in apparel and alive to everyone else, but they were dead on the inside, full of dead man's bones, Jesus said. They looked disciplined to others, but they were really self-indulgent and out of control. Jesus said, 
so you also hourly appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. They wanted to protect their image from the public, but behind closed doors they were murderers by association of their ancestors. These woes were uttered, were scathing denunciation of the leaders of that day, to say the least. But let me remind you, as Tim so faithfully preached last week, that this is not an act of raw fury, but Christ is calling these scribes and Pharisees to repent of their hypocrisy and turn to be saved. And he's even calling us to repent of ours. We've also been guilty of hypocrisy in some form or another. We had plenty of times we could admit that we played the two-faced game. And as we will see, these words were not rooted in unbridled wrath, but they sprang from a deep, deep abiding love of Jesus and anguish over their rejection. Now we find the king standing on the precipice of Jerusalem, overlooking the city, overcome with grief, weeping. In his final address to the crowd, we see four things about our king that could change everything in our life if we turn to him. Number one, we see the king Jesus lament. Number two, we see King Jesus love. Number three, we see King Jesus leaving. And number four, we see King Jesus return. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Number one, we see the king's lament over the city. Why does Jesus weep over the city? Well, thank you for asking that question. The city back then were places where people did civilize life together in proximity. These were cities built and fortified with walls for protection. Some even would call these cities refuge places where people would run to, cities with systems of law and order. They had a bright side and a dark side, places where you can accomplish great good or great evil, just like today. But why is Jesus weeping over this city? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The rather obvious answer is that this has become the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. It did not have a good reputation for how it treated God's messengers, to say the least. But this was not any old city. If only you could see Jerusalem through the Messiah's eyes, you would understand his tears. Jerusalem was special. Jesus grieved over what had become of it. Jerusalem means city of peace. It was the capital of Israel. It was where God's people dwelt. It was the location of the temple where all the nations were to come to to worship the Lord. It was the city of sojourn, where Israelites came from all over the world on pilgrimages. It was a place where God chose to reveal his Shekinah glory, the epic center of worship. He was not weeping over a geographical location or that beautiful temple. No. Jesus was weeping over the people who resided in the city. His heart was aching for the people in the city of Jerusalem. 
And may our hearts ache and break over the people who reside in this county, in this city, and in this state. For we're in dire circumstances today. These were people through whom God chose to bring his salvation to the nations, as we see in the Abrahamic covenant. They were entrusted with the very oracles of God and the covenant promises. John tells us in John chapter 1, verse 12, that he came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. They rejected him as their Messiah. But to all who receive him, to them that believe in him, he's given a right to become sons and daughters of God. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, the city. Could you hear the pain in his voice? He wept for the daughter of Zion. It was like the pain of a mother who had lost her child. One can only imagine what that feels like. Our prayers go out to Ahmaud Arbery's mother and every mother who has lost a child. Jesus' soul was in anguish. He was grieving over their rejection. They did not realize that they had rejected the anointed one of Israel, the king of kings, the one who was predicted in the Old Testament that he would come to bring peace to Jerusalem. They did not know that they, who they were rejecting. They did not know the one that they were going to pierce. They did not recognize his day of visitation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jerusalem massacred God's messengers. Many lost their lives in calling her to repentance. Israel missed her Messiah and all the prophecies pointing to him. And now we find the city in a mess. It was so bad, by the time we come to the earthly ministry of Jesus, the place known as the temple of God was filled with religious people who were making a profit selling animals in the sanctuary. It was so divested of God's holy presence that Jesus declared, my house should be called the house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Can you hear the agony in his voice? The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Jesus wept because this is what they were doing in the present tense. Kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Between the Old and New Testament period, known as the Intertestament period, there was 400 years of silence due to Israel's captivity and disobedience. There was no pillar of fire by night or pillar of cloud by day. It was so bad, by the time we reached the New Testament era, scribes and Pharisees, the original official leaders, religious leaders of that day, were now studying the Scriptures with a fierce devotion, but they did not know the God of the Scriptures. Their system of tradition had so blinded them from God that we find Jesus saying to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus wept over the city because these were the people to whom God chose to bring salvation to the world. And they rejected him and discarded his prophets and messengers sent one after another. Listen carefully how Jesus concluded the seven rules against the religious leaders of his day. In verse 29, 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and declarate the monuments of the righteous, saying, we had, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourself that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jesus was weeping over his executioners. These were the tenants who killed the son in the parable of the vineyard. These were the ones invited to the wedding feast but did not show up. These were the one considered the prodigal son who was lost inside the house. We're talking about these leaders who were guilty of murder in the sanctuary. It doesn't get any worse than that. This gut-riching cry of our Lord over Jerusalem in particular, his leaders, and those crowds who rejected him is the result of sin. Sin levels the playing ground, doesn't it, for all of us. Before any of us can turn up our nose at Israel and its false leaders, its false guides, let's examine our own hearts. Is there anything in me that has gone wrong that needs the Lord's attention and repair? Romans chapter 3, verse 23 says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is not one righteous, no, not one. We're all naturally hostile to God and cannot come to him on our own terms. We cannot work up a sweat into salvation. We need King Jesus. But notice where this weeping and brokenness over the city flows out of. Number two, King Jesus' lament for the city flows out of his love for those in the city. His lament for the city flows out of his love for those in the city. Look at the king's heart for the daughter of Zion. Indeed, his heart for all of us. Verse 37 how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not. You were not willing. Christ could have chosen any metaphor he wanted to to describe the nature of his love for his Jewish people. He, he did not say how often I would have gathered you together as a general gathered his troops. He did not say how often I would have gathered your children as a bear protecting her cubs. No. Jesus uses the metaphor of a chicken, a mother hen, to describe his heart for his people, even those who had rejected him. It is reminiscent of Yahweh's initiating his covenant relationship with Israel in a metaphor of the eagle with her young. In Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, tells us that you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. How often I would have gathered your children together 
as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. I got curious. I wanted, I wanted to learn more about this metaphor Jesus used. Because the only thing I knew about a hen is Cornish hen or buttermilk fried chicken. I didn't grow up on a farm. Some people were hungry already. So I watched a couple of documentaries, and I noticed right away how extremely protective hens are of their young. These chicks would retire each day, disappearing under the fluffy wings of mama chicken. This was home. She nurtured them. She fed them and protected them. They followed her with a fierce devotion. And as I watched one documentary of chickens in a coop on a farm, there was a moment when all the chickens scattered throughout, caught wind of a bird predator at a distance. And all the chickens began to run for cover, except one hen. She had several chicks tagging along beside her, but could not keep up. So what did she do? Did she leave them to fend for themselves? No. Instinctively, she hunkered down in the field. She grabbed her young ones. They disappeared under her feathers to protect her young people, her young, from being eaten alive. She courageously pulls them in to protect them while this predator swoops down to grip her up to her death. I was certain that this hawk was going to kill this hen. But something unusual happened. The hawk swooped down on the hen and suddenly missed the depth drift, the death drift. When the farmer came out to check the hen and the chicks, to his amazement, all of them were still alive. I learned a very important lesson about a hen. She feeds her chicks for survival. She nurtures them. She provides a home for them under her feathers. But make no mistake about it, a hen will instinctively give her life to protect her chicks from harm. Jesus cried, how often I would have gathered you together, your children together under my wings for their protection. This metaphor reminds me of Tony and Coralie Rank in their book, Mama Enough, states, at the very heart of the gospel is sacrifice. And there is perhaps no occupation in the world so intrinsically sacrificial as motherhood. Can I get amen out there? And as re I recall in my childhood at the age of six years old, my mother took my siblings and I to Penn's Landing to enjoy a beautiful waterfront. And there was a huge crowd out there that day, and suddenly, to our surprise, gunshots ring out. People started stampeding, running all over the place. My mother instinctively grabbed all five of us together, moved us out of the way, and threw her body over us to protect us from harm's way or a straight bullet. Amazing. There's something about the unusual nature of a mother's love. So giving, so sacrificial, so protective, whether it's the hen looking after her chicks or mama shielding us with her body, they imperfectly reflect the incredible sacrificial love of Christ. Such love was manifested 
on August 16, 1987, Northwest Airlines Flight 225 crashed just after takeoff from Detroit Airport, killing 155 people. One survived, a four-year-old from Tempe, Arizona, named Cecilia. News accounts say that rescuers, when they found Cecilia, they did not believe she was on the plane. Investigators first assumed that Cecilia had been a passenger in one of their cars on the highway onto which the airliner crashed. But when the passenger register for the flight was checked, there was Cecilia's name. Cecilia survived because even as the plane was falling, Cecilia's mother, Paula Chicken, unbuckled her seatbelt, got down on her knees in front of her daughter, wrapped her arms and body around Cecilia, and then would not let her go. Nothing can separate that child from mama's love. Neither tragedy nor disaster, neither the fall nor the flames that follow, neither height nor death, neither life nor death. And like that child caught in the middle of disaster, so we have been trapped by our own sin, spiraling down to inevitable doom. But God, who loves us so much, left heaven, came down to our level, covered us with the sacrifice of his own body so that we might, he might save us from the fall. We were crashing down to hell. But God, I'm so glad that Christ threw his body over you and I on that cross to protect us from the crashing blow of God's wrath. How often I would have gathered your children as a mother hen gathers her brood. The metaphor reminds us that God's love is relentless. He pursues us even in our rebellion. That's why the Apostle Paul later picks up his pen and writes that God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still in sin, Christ died for us. That is incredible love. Do you see the mother hen's love in Jesus for all people? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. William Law, in adoring the heart of God, said that Christ is the breathing forth of the heart, life, and spirit of God and to all the dead race of Adam. He is the seeker, the finder, the restorer of all that from Cain to the end of time was lost and dead to the life of God. He is the love that prays for all of its murderers, the love that willingly suffers and dies among thieves, the thie that thieves may have life with him in paradise, the love that visits publicans, prostitutes, sinners, and wants and seeks to forgive where most is to be forgiven. But are you willing? The songwriter Corey Asbury called it reckless love. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. 
Oh, it chases me down. Fights to unfound, leaves the 99. I couldn't earn it, and I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, yeah. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. That song resonates within my soul when I reflect on the love of Christ for us, even in this pandemic. Jesus cried, how often I would have gathered your children under my wings in my home, but you were not willing. The problem was not the willingness of Jesus to rescue and protect them. The problem was that they were not willing. Therefore, the prophecy of destruction came upon them. The king does not force entry into our lives. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, he said, I, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. and he with me. Fellowship with Christ is a choice. God is sovereign and all-powerful, and he will not destroy the agency of your free will. Adam and Eve, as compelling as the temptation was, still had a choice. The nation of Israel in the wilderness had a choice. Coming to know Christ as Savior is the free gift of God, and yet you have a choice to receive it or reject it. The consequences are eternal and irreversible. When Jesus confronts the religious leaders earlier in his ministry, chapter 21, verse 31, he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, tax collectors and the prostitutes Go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterwards change your mind and believe him. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is death and destruction. Christ, no doubt, is sacrificial in his love, but he is also holy and just. Number three, when the king leaves, he leaves. Here we find a tragic turning point in the narrative. Verse 37c. How often I would have gathered you, your children together, as a hen gathers her brood, her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing, verse 37. See your houses left to you desolate. The object of what you want is yours and is empty. In other words, Jesus is saying it's a wrap. Your rejection of Yeshua as king becomes your judgment. This is Jesus' last recorded teachings to the crowds in Matthew. All of the teaching moving forward is in private with his disciples. 
oh, for these next few chapters, you want to be disciples of Christ. Only disciples get the insider addition to come in attractions. In these last days, you want to make sure you know Christ is your Lord and Savior and that you're his disciples in the midst of this no-joke pandemic. You want to know him. Death is intimate. Life is short. Eternity is forever. You have a choice. Jesus was not, watch this, as he was preaching, this was the Jewish leader's final class, if you will. No more preaching in their temples. No more parables to pull them in. No more ministry miracles to point them to the Messiah. No more disputes around the Sabbath. Nothing. To reject Christ, my friend, is detrimental to your soul. Listen again to Luke's account of Jesus weeping over the city. He elaborates on the details of this devastation. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for your peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus was weeping when he spoke these gut-riching words. And it's easy for us to see how the scribes and Pharisees had it coming to them, right? They were getting what they deserved, right? But do you know the time of your visitation by Christ? Have you ever wanted something so bad that God allowed you to have it, and that became your judgment? I can imagine that this was worse. History tells us 70 years after the death of Christ on the cross, the enemy troops marched in, destroyed the temple, and leveled Jerusalem to the ground. And the words of this prophecy came true. And in fact, Matthew picks up in the next chapter, listen to these words in chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, probably noticing how beautiful this edifice was. But verse 2, Jesus answered them, you see all these? Do you not? Truly I say to you that there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Let's not forget that someone greater than the temple is here. When it, Jesus eventually breaks our fall by dying on the cross for us, there was an earthquake, and a 30-foot veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. God was tearing open the way for us to finally be reconciled to God through Christ so that nothing stands in between you and him. 
Jesus said, how often I would have gathered your children as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. In C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce, he said that there are two kinds of people. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says, all right then, have it your way. The last thing you want to hear from God is for him to tell you, all right then, have it your way. You don't want to have it your way. This is not Burger King. Again, Jesus tells the Pharisees and scribes, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. These religious leaders had countless opportunities to respond to Christ's call, but they were going to be crushed by their own rejection. My friend, if you don't repent and come to Christ, there is no hope for you. Your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left to you desolate. The next time we find Jesus in the temple is when he has been dragged into the temple courts to be prosecuted by the religious leaders. It appears on the surface of this text that Jesus is pronouncing their fatality, choosing to close the the curtains on their destiny. But in reality, he was calling them to repentance. He was calling them to a deep contrition to change your course of direction, to turn from self-salvation to trust in Christ alone for his salvation, to turn from self-righteousness to God's righteousness in Christ. No, this was not their fate. As the Apostle Paul argues so brilliantly in Romans chapter 9 through 11, there is a remnant that will be saved. God has not revoked his promises to Israel, Romans chapter 11. He still loves her and has a plan for all Israel to be saved. This was the whole point of the prophetic judgment here. It was a fulfillment of Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 30 through 32. Therefore, I judge you, O house of Israel, every one of you according to his ways, declares the Lord. Listen to these words. Repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Turn away from all the transgressions that you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. Do you hear the Lord's plea in these words? Are you ready to turn and live? We see Jesus lament over the city, flowing out of his heart for the city. Yet, when religious leaders of that day reject King Jesus, he leaves. And if you and I reject the gracious offer of salvation, there is no refuge from him. There's only refuge in him. Jesus is the hope of glory. All is not lost. There is still time. Lastly, when King Jesus returns, we see those who are ready to receive him. Look at verse 38. See your houses left of you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Back in Matthew chapter 21, verse 9, hints to the fulfillment of Psalm 118, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey as Israel's long-awaited king. We see in verse 9, and the crowds, the same crowds who would turn their back on him a week later, went before him and followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus came humbly riding in on a donkey as Israel's king to be crucified. But he's coming back one day as the king of kings and lord of lords, galloping on a white horse to rapture his church, which includes both Jews and Gentiles. All is not lost. There is hope in Christ. Matthew gives us a sneak preview of the coming king in the next chapter. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heaven to the other. Jesus is coming back to get every tribe, nation, and tongue who receives him as King of kings, Lord of lords, as Savior of the world. And in that glorious moment, the messianic prophecy of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, will be fulfilled that the Jews will one day look to the one they have pierced. And in that glorious moment, they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Paul tells us that there is a remnant that will be saved. So regardless of your ethnic, social, cultural, or economic background, will you be among those in excitement, who say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. But the question is, will the king be your king and savior, or will he be your judge? We see our Lord's cry over the city. We see his compassion for those in the city. We see him leaving the city as a result, result of their rejection. But one day, he's returning to take us to a new city, the holy city, not made with hands, new Jerusalem. John tells us in Revelation chapter 21, verse 2, and I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride dawn for her husband, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And no more death. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Are you ready to meet the king? He is knocking at the door of your life. But the question is, are you ready to receive him? If you let him in, it changes everything. Father, we pray that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth in our lives as it already is done in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen.